This is the Liberty and Law Podcast, where practicing lawyer and legal scholar Jeff Teichert offers unique insight into the relationship between law and liberty in history, politics, and American life. If you have a passion for liberty, you are in the right place. Hello, liberty lovers, and welcome to another edition of the Liberty and Law Podcast. And I want to discuss something today that is near and dear to my heart, and yet it's little known and little understood by most Americans, and that is the Tenth Amendment, the last amendment that was considered a portion of the Bill of Rights. And I think it's uh, very important to understand that the Tenth Amendment is not a guarantee of a substantive right, but it is about political architecture. It's the way the uh, Constitution delegates power between the federal government and the states. And so let's begin just by reading the text of the Tenth Amendment and maybe unpacking that a little bit and then move forward with some, uh, some analysis of federalism principles. By the way, I want to just say at the outset, uh, I uh, authored an article in the BYU Journal of Public Law back, I don't know, 20 some odd years ago uh, in volume seven of that, of that uh, publication where I talked about uh, a then recent U.S. Supreme Court case interpreting the Tenth Amendment. And uh, if, if any of you can find it, you might find that interesting. There's much of what I'm going to discuss today that is also discussed and expounded in that article. If any of you want to email me, I'd be happy to shoot you a copy of that article. In any case, the Tenth Amendment says, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it, meaning the Constitution, to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Okay, that's a, a complex sentence, but let's unpack it a little bit. First, let's, let's leave out that little prohibited to the states clause and, and read it again uh, for a little bit more clarity. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. All right. So first of all, we're looking at Article One of the Constitution then, because that's where Congress is given the power to pass laws on certain subjects. And it's this is essentially saying if the Constitution hasn't delegated a particular power to the federal government, it's reserved to the states or the people. Now, what does the states or the people mean? Well, under your state constitution, the states will be the state will be given certain powers, right? Uh, but if it's not granted by the state constitution to the state, and it's not granted by the federal constitution to the federal government, then it is reserved to the people as something they have a right not to be regulated under. It's kind of a residual rights idea. So. Uh, the powers are not, 
let's look at this again now. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, and then the part we're going to focus on now, nor prohibited by it to the states. Well, there are certain prohibitions in the Constitution saying states can't do this, states can't do that. And so if there is something prohibited to the states, the federal government can step in and regulate in that area according to the 10th Amendment. However, in general, a power that is not delegated specifically by the Constitution to the federal government belongs to the states. And there's a, I'd like to use a metaphor here. If you think about <laughs> islands, you're talking here about islands of government power in a sea of liberty because power and freedom are opposite, right? Now, we have to maintain a certain amount of, of law and order to have liberty, um, to prevent oppression, you know, and mob rule and things like that. But... Uh, the general rule is the government can't do it unless the Constitution specifically says it can. And so we're looking at islands of government power in a sea of liberty. We don't look at rights as islands of liberty in a sea of government power. Okay, we do have the first eight amendments to the Constitution that guarantee certain rights as exceptions to any power granted by, by Congress. But in, a, in general terms, under the 10th Amendment, the powers of government are exceptions to the freedom of the people. And as the power of government grows, the freedom of the people shrinks, right? <clears throat> the founders wanted to make it explicit in the 10th Amendment that the presumption was the government can't regulate. Now show us the constitutional provision that says they can. Let's go into a further discussion of federalism values. James Madison, the father of the Constitution, argued in Federalist 46 for local control of matters that directly concern the citizens. For example, this is what he says. Many considerations besides those suggested on a former occasion seem to place it beyond doubt that the first and most natural attachment of the people will be to the governments of their respective states. By the superintending care of these states, all the more domestic and personal interests of the people will be regulated and provided for. How many domestic and personal interests of the people now are regulated and provided for by the federal government rather than the states? How about health care? Federal government seems to have taken over regulation of that. How about uh, labor laws and protections? Seems to have gone federal in, in large measure. How about uh, welfare and food stamps and things like that. 
seems largely to have gone federal. And so if you think about it, a lot of things that were originally thought to be areas of state concern have become uh, more national. Even the federal government uh, now has a Department of Education uh, established originally by Jimmy Carter and, and Ronald Reagan kept trying to get rid of it, saying this is a state a state responsibility, not a federal responsibility, and we shouldn't have the federal government interfering in it. Well, he seems to have lost that that argument over time uh, in the public mind. I think part of the reason that this has been uh, evolving in the direction that it has is because re people really don't understand the the difficulty um, that can be presented by streamlining government power and the checks and balances that are created by the Tenth Amendment. One, uh, one reason for local control of problems allows states to act as safe repositories of individual freedom. And since states are, are much smaller than the nation at large, it's easier uh, to vote with your feet and, and move somewhere else with a less tyrannical government. Uh, you've seen people doing this, fleeing from California in recent years in droves because of high taxes and other, uh, you know, overregulation and many other problems that that they don't want to deal with. So they have uh, the right under the federal constitution to move to a different state. They can't be prohibited from leaving their home state and moving somewhere else and starting over. Uh, Madison also wrote in Federalist 10 about how local majority factions can prove threatening to individual liberty. Uh, you know, if there's a particular group that is advocating something that's tyrannical, uh, that can be checked by a strong national government. And so there's kind of this tension between you want states to be able to experiment and have their own little domain and a state uh, which is threatening to individual liberty. People can flee and go to a state that has a government they prefer. Uh, and that is balanced against the, the idea that... Um, factions may find it easier to gain control in a smaller area like a state than, uh, it, than at the federal level. I'm not sure when Madison made that argument that he fully understood uh, that by expanding the sphere, they were going to create interest groups that would lobby the federal government as hard as they do. But his overall principle analysis, I think, is correct. It is harder 
for an individual faction to gain a majority in the federal government than it would be at the state level. In any case, we've seen examples of this, for example, in the the Jim Crow South, for example, where laws were passed that treated African Americans uh, unequally uh, from from other people. Uh, segregation and you know poll taxes and go down the list. And those those abuses needed to be checked by a federal government. Uh, the civil rights laws, uh, whatever they, you know, whatever auspices they were passed under, I believe were justified under the 14th Amendment, which guarantees citizens equal protection of the laws. And if that means anything at all, I think it means that race is irrelevant and uh, that equality before the law, uh, regardless of race, is a constitutional principle. So, as we think about, uh, about these arguments, we have to look at kind of the tension between these two principles. And I think another example of, of this tension would, would be looking at early debates over uh, religion. Uh, the freedom of religion clause of the first amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion uh, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now that says Congress shall not. So it's limiting the federal government by its own terms. So how come we have the first amendment being applied against state school boards and other state entities because it happens all the time, right? There's all kinds of litigation that makes its way to the Supreme Court. Uh, Oregon Employment Division versus Smith is an example. A state government got sued for violating the First Amendment. How can that be? By its terms, the First Amendment only prohibits Congress. Well, the 14th Amendment, Section 1, includes this language. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Okay? So, it's saying that a, a state, this is post-Civil War, no state can make or enforce any law which abridges the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Is not every provision in the Bill of Rights a privilege of, a, of citizens of the United States? Well, of course it is. Now, the Supreme Court, for whatever reason, is they had a confusing array of cases on this subject. Uh, and, and the subject is called, you'll hear it referred to as incorporation, is the Bill of Rights incorporated against the states. Most of it, the Supreme Court says, is. They, they adopted a selective incorporation doctrine saying that 
a few of the guarantees of the Constitution are are not applicable against the states, but most most are. And so that's a uh, that's where we get the the Bill of Rights being applied against states. That was a, a tremendous transfer of power from the states to the federal government, saying that the Bill of Rights uh, applied against the states. And I think that was done specifically um, because southern states were not treating some citizens equally. Now, if I follow on that language, let me read it again and then read what follows. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And so, again, the idea that that a state, well, and, and nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And so I think specifically, it's saying, hey, the federal government has the right uh, to, to enforce the equal protection of the laws and the Bill of Rights against the states because the states have been treating African Americans unequally. And, you know, that was in one of the post-Civil War amendments that did uh, radically change the language of the Constitution. So, going back to the idea of the freedom of religion, if a, if a particular religion dominated in an individual state, dissenters were at liberty in those days to travel to a more tolerant state. And in the past, they've done that in great numbers. The controlling principle for dividing power between the federal government and the states is to expressly enumerate the federal government's powers when there is broad national consensus. <laughs> and how do we determine if there's broad national consensus? Well, it's written into the Constitution, right? It requires two-thirds of both houses and three-quarters of the states to agree to give the federal government new powers. That's the formula for amending the Constitution. And where that consensus is lacking, it's proper to leave those powers to the several states. Now, I, I personally believe that the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment applies to make the Bill of Rights applicable to the states. And the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause also uh, applicable to the states. And by its terms, it is prohibiting the states to do certain things. Well, that's uh, uh, an example of where in the 10th Amendment, there are powers prohibited to the states, right? So... It's important to understand the post-Civil War uh, amendments 
to understand kind of where this, you know, where this uh, principle is evolving. An important, another important federalism doctrine is the division of power between units of government. Uh, if people have a loyalty to their state and to the federal government, then the federal government doesn't have a monopoly on the people's loyalty, right? If the states have certain powers that the federal government can't meddle with, then uh, there's a separate sovereign there that is safeguarding the liberties of the people. And it's, it's popular to disparage gridlock in Washington, D.C. However... Uh, gridlock merely means, okay, the House doesn't agree with the Senate. Maybe the Democrats rule one chamber and the Republicans rule the other. And so it makes it hard to pass laws. Well, our Constitution is full of blocking mechanisms. And it is not prized for its efficiency. Uh, you know, a tripartite government like ours is not meant to run like a business. You wouldn't set up a board of directors, you know, a bicameral board of directors with 400 odd members in it. Uh, and, you know, two separate boards of directors that both have to agree that any, for anything to become company policy, you wouldn't do that. It takes forever to get something passed, right? Our Constitution was created for gridlock to make government slow and cumbersome and to be able to check potential excesses that would harm the liberty of the people. So if we make the federal government all-powerful and basically cast aside the states, we've removed an important check. Uh, Madison also said, and uh, this is in Federalist 51, in the compound Republic of America, compound is, is interesting, the power surrendered by the people. Now, this the idea that the people are surrendering power is the idea that the people are sovereign, right? That they're granting certain powers to their government. We are people that have a government, not the other way around. The power surrendered by the people is first divided between two distinct governments, that's state and federal, and then the portion allotted to each subdivided among the distinct and separate departments, that's executive, legislative, and judicial. Hence, a double security arises to the rights of the people. The different governments will control each other. At the same time, each will be controlled by itself. Makes sense, right? And so, so we want to understand that the Tenth Amendment is an important restriction on federal power that is designed to protect freedom. There's also a thing in the federal constitution called the Supremacy Clause. And uh, it makes the Constitution of the United States, the laws of the United States, and the treaties 
made by the United States, the supreme law of the land. Okay, so that that is called the supremacy clause uh, in Article 4 of the Constitution. And it's basically saying that within those powers granted to the federal government in Article 1, the federal government is preeminent over the states. But in areas where it is not delegated to the federal government, the states can do what they want and the federal government can't get involved. Um, James Madison also said, an entire consolidation of the states into one complete national sovereignty would imply an entire subordination of the parts and whatever powers remain in them would be altogether dependent on the general will. But as the plan of the convention aims only at a partial union or consolidation, the state governments would clearly retain all the rights of sovereignty which were before had and which were not by that act, meaning the Constitution, exclusively delegated to the United States. Sorry, that was Alexander Hamilton, Federalist 32. Even Hamilton, who was a Federalist, believed what I just taught you. Now, here's another um, important principle. This is Madison, Federalist 45. He says, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former, federal powers meaning, will be exercised principally on external objects as war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce. With the last, the power of taxation will for the most part be connected. So, so basically the power of taxation was going to be taxes on commerce, tariffs, and things like that. The powers reserved to the several states will extend to all the objects which in the ordinary course of affairs concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people. That would be health care, welfare, food safety, you know, food stamps, all of that kind of stuff. Education. The powers reserved to the several states will extend to all the objects which in the ordinary course of affairs concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people, and the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. And so you might wonder, <clears throat> as I've kind of laid this out, um, how did this get so messed up? Uh, you know, obviously the federal government is involved in all kinds of things that, that Madison just <clears throat> said it would not be involved in, that those things would be reserved to state governments. Well, I think, as I said before in discussing Jim Crow laws, there's an unfair kind of um, argument made that, that 
states' rights is really code for slavery and segregation and racism, and that people wanted to hide behind states' rights to keep their fellow citizens enslaved or at a disadvantage. And, and, and that's really, like I said, not, not very fair. Um, important things uh, have happened in our history, which, which have biased some people against states' rights, and I, and I understand that. Um, the, the, the question, I guess, that we ought to, uh, to think about then is, is how did these powers of the federal government that are supposed to be few and defined get so widely expanded? Well, I think the answer to that uh, is found in uh, the watershed events of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. And we'll talk about the mechanisms in a minute. <clears throat> but as you may know, Franklin Roosevelt was trying to enact a series of economic measures designed to get the economy going again. Uh, <clears throat> he was experimenting with a thing he called the New Deal, which was, you know, essentially wealth redistribution. It was to take all the cards in and, and deal them out again. We're going to have a New Deal. Uh, everybody's going to be treated fairly, and we're going to make sure that all the people uh, have, you know, food and clothing and whatever. And and he was creating jobs for people that had been displaced by the Depression. And a lot of those were those sort of local and personal concerns that James Madison said were reserved to the states. Well, the way that you end up judicially allowing something that's really unconstitutional is you liberally redefine the words in the Constitution. Madison said that the terms uh, or the powers of the federal government were few and defined. Well, the, the Constitution doesn't uh, explicitly define commerce. And the power to regulate commerce among the several states and with foreign nations and Indian tribes is not a particularly limited or defined power. I mean, I think we all could probably understand that what Madison was talking about was being able to to make trade agreements with other countries and to uh, regulate trade between the states. I, I think the federal constitution uh, envisioned that. 
the Supreme Court was busy striking down a lot of President Roosevelt's initiatives when uh, he got upset about that and made a plan to pack the Supreme Court. <clears throat> he he wanted to get a Supreme Court that was more in line with his program. And uh, the Congress wouldn't give it to him. But the Supreme Court was worried about its institutional integrity and didn't want a constitutional battle with the president over measures that at the time were very popular. And so Chief Justice, or not Chief Justice, Justice Owen Roberts switched sides in this debate and they called it the switch in time that saved nine, that kept the Supreme Court with nine justices <clears throat> instead of adding the new ones that President Roosevelt wanted. And uh, the Supreme Court decided a case called Wickard versus Filburn. This basically suggested that the uh, it, it, it held that people growing wheat on their own farms, uh, if they hadn't, you know, for their own consumption in their own homes, if they hadn't been growing that wheat on their farm, they would have had to buy it somewhere else. And that would have affected interstate commerce in some way. Therefore, raising wheat on your own farm for your own personal consumption relates to interstate commerce and can be regulated by the federal government. Now, as patently ridiculous as that sounds, that's really where the erosion of state powers uh, took off in the modern era. And <clears throat> there have been attempts over that time to curtail it. For example, there was a, a case called Hodel versus Virginia Surface Mining and Reclamation, uh, decided in 1981. And there the Supreme Court kind of attempted to carve out some preeminence for the states again at the te uh, under the Tenth Amendment and said that the federal government could not commandeer state legislative processes. They're saying, you know, the, the federal government cannot simply tell the states what laws they have to enact. And, and uh, that's part of, of course, respecting their sovereignty. Uh, <clears throat> Well, in, in, uh, in saying so, it, it, I think it was the wrong paradigm. I mean, it still looked at states' rights kind of as islands of liberty and a sea of federal power uh, or islands of state power in a sea of federal power. It, it did at least attempt to carve out for the states, some uh, some elements of sovereignty that were meaningful. Uh, 
and this principle that it that the the court recognizes called the state autonomy principle however the Ussery decision was explicitly overruled in Garcia versus San Antonio Metropolitan Transit Authority and the Garcia court held that, quote, a rule of state immunity from federal regulation that turns on a judicial appraisal of whether a particular governmental function is integral or traditional is unsound in principle and unworkable in practice. The court went on, we doubt that courts ultimately can identify principled constitutional limitations on the scope of Congress's Commerce Clause power over states merely by relying on a priori definitions of state sovereignty. In part, this is because of the elusiveness of objective criteria for fundamental elements of state sovereignty, a problem we have witnessed in the search for traditional governmental functions. So, again, uh, they're, what they're saying in a fancy way is we don't think we can really determine by resort to tradition and history and things what are traditionally, what powers are traditionally reserved to the states. And so we think that's the wrong way to determine what state sovereignty is. Uh, but they never answered the question of what the of how you actually could then go about that. It was essentially, the Garcia case was essentially saying that uh, there was nothing the Supreme Court could do to determine what state states' rights were. And it said that rather than relying on, quote, judicially created limitations on federal power, it would rely on, quote, procedural safeguards inherent within the structure of the federal system. So essentially saying, well, because congressmen and senators represent individual states, they will worry about whether or not the federal government has the power to do, you know, a, a particular thing. Well, so they, they essentially threw up their hands and said, um, the Tenth Amendment is not enforceable through the courts. It's uh, protected in the political system, which, of course, it, it isn't and never has been. Uh, however, the state autonomy defense began a certain resurgence in Gregory versus Ashcroft, and uh, that was in 1991. And... In that case, the court upheld Missouri's constitutional requirement that judges requ retire at age 70. Um, that had been challenged under the Federal Age Discrimination and Employment Act. And, and there the court, in Gregory, the court said that traditional governmental functions approach uh, um, could be applied to determining the qualifications of state officers and, and that you know, telling the federal government, telling states that they had to continue to allow state employees to remain in office was, was an invasion of state sovereignty. 
And you can certainly understand that. Um, you know, the federal government telling state governments, you have to, you know, this, these are the reasons for which you can fire state employees or allow, force them to retire or whatever is a tremendous invasion of, of that state's sovereignty and independence. And anyway, that is how we end up at New York versus United States, uh, which struck certain portions of the Low-Level Radioactive Waste Policy Amendments Act of 1985 uh, down as unconstitutional under the 10th Amendment. It, ironically, that, that uh, act had been recommended by the National Governors Association. But there were three provisions intended to encourage states to develop their own policies for disposing of low-level radioactive waste. The first was the monetary incentive. So states um, that had disposal sites could collect a surcharge for accepting waste during a, a seven-year period. And the surcharges would be taxed with the proceeds held in escrow and then would be distributed to states complying with the act. The second provision was an access incentive, which allowed states with waste disposal sites to gradually multiply those surcharges and eventually deny access to disposal sites. The third provision was where the real problem came in. It required states that failed to meet these deadlines in the act to take title to the waste and to take possession of it and rendering those states liable for any damages that occurred <clears throat> for failure to create safe storage for this nuclear waste. And Justice O'Connor, uh, who incidentally was from Arizona, you know, this, the home state of Barry Goldwater, and there's a very libertarian tradition uh, in the West, particularly in, in, in Arizona specifically. I mean, you you know, people in Arizona, you you uh, go out and you start ranching in the desert and you take care of yourself and you don't need the federal government telling you what to do. I think there's a certain flavor of that in some of Justice O'Connor's opinions. Certainly not all. But <clears throat> anyway, um, she, uh, she relied on the Hodel case, which had been explicitly overruled in the Garcia case, but Justice O'Connor kind of revived it and brought it back. Uh, and it, it called Garcia into question then um, because Justice O'Connor was explicitly saying, well, the Supreme Court can step in and enforce the 10th Amendment. And, and then she brought back traditional function analysis saying if a particular area of regulation is a traditional function of the states, uh, then the federal government can't commandeer state legislative processes in those matters. Now, I would argue that education was one of those. That was a traditional state function. The federal government came in and started regulating. Well, why, what didn't the Supreme Court step in and say, the Federal Department of Education is unconstitutional, it must be abolished. A couple of reasons. One, the Supreme Court at the time things were uh, that this was passed 
was more left-leaning and probably would not have have come to that conclusion. Uh, another reason it hasn't been challenged, even when there was a court that might be friendly to an argument like that, which uh, since uh, Reagan, the Supreme Court has tended to be a little more originalist, a little more conservative, a little more faithful to original intent. But a case hasn't been brought, and the Supreme Court can't just sua sponte, go out and say, all right, we're going to make a ruling even though no case is before us. One of the limitations on the Supreme Court's power is it can only decide the constitutionality of a particular government action uh, if somebody brings a case before them that raises the question. So the Supreme Court just doesn't have the authority to go out and just stop things from happening. Somebody has to bring a case and nobody has. So anyway, that's, that's an example for how some things that are unconstitutional uh, got going and have continued for a long time. Anyway, Justice O'Connor wanted to draw the line in terms of uh, if it was a traditional state function, the federal government couldn't interfere with it. Now, that, that kind of turns the Tenth Amendment on its head, right? It says, basically, if the federal government isn't given the right to regulate, uh, then the state, then that's reserved to the states. All the residue of everything is reserved to the states or the, the people if the state doesn't choose to regulate through its constitution. So, but, but Justice O'Connor's analysis is, well, if there's a traditional state function, that's protected and the federal government can basically do anything else. It, it sort of puts, it, it says, well, if traditionally states have regulated this or that thing, they can continue to do so without federal interference, but the federal government can do anything else. Puts residual power in the federal government, not in the states. Why did she decide that way? Well, I think it was because in the historical context of, of the time she was on the court, the, the existing law, the existing Supreme Court precedent was we can't do anything about uh, enforcing the Tenth Amendment. That's up to the political process, and Congress can basically do anything it wants. So she's trying by, you know, incremental steps, I think, to carve out more protection for state sovereignty than had existed before. And I think she maybe thought it was just a bridge too far to go back to the complete original interpretation. I kind of personally believe she would have liked to do that, but hard to say. Um, anyway, that's kind of what the New York versus United States case uh amounted to. And that I wrote my case note on New York versus United States. And I, you know, I liked the decision, even though the, the pure originalist in me would like to have seen the, the Supreme Court take a clear position on the Tenth Amendment that was consistent with its original intent and overrule a bunch of the cases that were 
that were against it. <clears throat> but uh, like I said, I think Justice O'Connor probably thought that's going to turn the whole constitutional system that has evolved on its head. And we've got to be careful how, how fast we move uh, on this. And I think that's how she, she probably came up with the traditional state functions analysis. Um, <clears throat> so where do we, where do we go from here? Um, I, I proposed in my case note that <clears throat> instead of looking for state autonomy principles and looking at how traditionally states have regulated and what they've been in charge of, uh, which is a problematic way to try to define things, I think a preferable way to go forward after New York, and I, and I said this in my article, was to decide the analysis based on a substantive analysis of the commerce power. Um, prior to Garcia, the, the Hodel court had attempted a substantive analysis. Hodel adopted a three-pronged test uh, interpreting national legal cities versus usury. And, and uh, subsequent cases also held that the state autonomy defense would not apply to, to previously unregulated areas because they were not traditional functions. Um, anyway, in determining whether a particular law is constitutional, uh, I think you need to, the courts need to ascertain first whether it falls within one of the Constitution's substantive powers, in, in this case, talking about the Commerce Clause. And, and in doing so, uh, I think, and I said this, I wrote this in my article, we need to look at the scope of the commerce power and read it as, as clearly as we can uh, within the structure of the Tenth Amendment. And I, I draw at least four conclusions about the scope of the commerce power by an originalist analysis. First, I think Congress may exercise the commerce power to burden or discriminate against the articles of interstate commerce, goods and whatever that are, you know, being sold across state lines and so forth. Or to prevent items from becoming articles of interstate commerce. Second, Congress may not place regulations of goods outside the stream of interstate commerce. So this, the Congress could not regulate stuff that is being produced within Utah for Utah citizens only. They, they don't become interstate goods until they enter the stream of interstate commerce. But Congress could ban them from coming into the stream of interstate commerce if they chose. Or they could burden them after they arrive in co interstate commerce if, if they do. Third, 
Congress may not compel the states to subsidize or regulate local industries. Now, that would overturn a whole lot of federal law, which I understand. Fourth, if articles become the subject of interstate commerce, the federal government may regulate them directly. And that would be a significant retreat from the line of cases that culminated in Garcia and grossly expanded the commerce power. Uh, the court began that expansion, as I said, to avoid President Roosevelt's court packing plan. But the Garcia case broadened that to basically saying, we, the Supreme Court, can't even get involved in enforcing the Tenth Amendment. That's left to the political process. We're not going to do anything about it. And uh, a couple of cases since then have called that into question. And, and one of the uh, most important principles was the traditional state functions analysis, that we won't uh, allow the federal government to, to regulate in areas that states traditionally have regulated. We also won't allow them to interfere with state autonomy. You know, you can't go and tell states when judges appointed under their state constitutions must retire and so forth. Um, now, to talk about the substance of the commerce power, originally it was intended to promote positive commercial relationships. Uh, and for the most part, free trade among the citizens of the several states. And that would in turn facilitate broad bargaining power for the union and more advantageous trade agreements with other countries. It would aggregate our market power, right? And in this pursuit, the states had the power to impose tariffs and duties uh, necessary for executing their inspection laws. And that would allow the states a reasonable convenience to regulate their imports and exports, but it would allow the federal government to check any abuses of those taxes or those powers. <clears throat> and I think the founders understood that the relationships between things like manufacturing and trade, and real estate values, and so forth uh, were, were complex and crafted the Commerce Clause to provide for uniformity in America's trade strategy. And that uniformity could be achieved primarily by federal regulation of tariffs and duties and trade routes and roads and resources and things like that. So consistent with my reading of New York versus United States and the framers of the Constitution and the other precedents, I proposed that we define the commerce power, the substance of it, as one, the mechanisms of interstate commerce, and two, the objects of interstate commerce while they are in the sphere of interstate commerce. And I suggested that certain articles of commerce, like rivers and other natural resources that transcend state boundaries, are perpetually in interstate commerce and would always be within federal control. Now, there have been cases saying that isolated wetlands that have no hydrologic connection to anything out of state could be waters of the United States, and I think that's a massive expansion of federal power and unprincipled under the Constitution. Some objects are in the sphere of interstate commerce only during a commercial transaction that crosses state boundaries. 
anyway, my, my approach was look at the mechanisms of interstate commerce, you know, the channels and so forth, and the federal government can regulate them and the objects of interstate commerce, the goods that are flowing across state lines. Well, interestingly, a case came up four years later called Lopez. In an opinion written by Chief Justice Rehnquist, he argued that there were three broad categories uh, on, of which the federal government could regulate. Number one, the channels of interstate commerce. Number two, the instrumentalities of interstate commerce. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> now, I don't know if this is a case of how great minds think alike, or if one of his clerks got a hold of my article and liked this approach. I don't know. Not making any claims there. I'm just saying that the Supreme Court ended up kind of where I did, but they added a third one a substantial relation to interstate commerce. Now, that's a matter of degree, but I think it pulls back the Supreme Court's decision in Wickard versus Filburn that any tiny attenuated connection to interstate commerce was enough to put something within federal control, like growing wheat on your own farm for your own consumption. I think it attempts to say, you know, you got to have a pretty strong nexus within, you know, you've got to affect interstate commerce pretty closely, you know, pretty sig significantly to give the federal government control over it. The facts of the Lopez case actually included gun-free zones around schools, and the Supreme Court said that really has nothing to do with interstate commerce. It doesn't affect interstate commerce significantly. It isn't an object of interstate commerce. A school is a is an object of state law, and it's it's a building that sits in a particular place, and the zone around it is not an in interstate commerce. So. Basically, these, these now that doesn't mean states can't enact those kind of laws, but it said that the federal government can't because this thing has nothing to do with interstate commerce. And so the law was struck down. Well, where do we go from here? I've got a couple of ideas. Number one, I, I really believe that the, uh, the structure of our constitution is important and having states as repositories of individual liberty still matters in America. I really do. I don't believe we should go through removing checks on government power, on federal power, <clears throat> to make it easier to deal with problems. And and I think that having 50 different sovereigns in different regions of the country is a very valuable thing. And some have argued that past centralization of government powers and the federal government assuming more and more of the functions that traditionally they, they had nothing to do with uh, has compromised the intentions of the federal 
constitution so much that we we can't even worry about the 10th amendment anymore and i think that's what the garcia case was effectively saying before justice o'connor and chief justice rehnquist and others came in and started carving out some exceptions to the power of the federal government um some people believe the federal plan is fatally compromised now that that the federal government has assumed so much we might as well basically scrap the states and having conceded i guess that that's true to some extent we may never get rid of the federal department of education or the department of health and welfare and some of these other areas that really are doing things states were supposed to do under the federal constitution. It, it may take a long time for us to eliminate entire departments of government and, and to get the political will organized around kind of a heady philosophical argument that I'm making here. Uh, you know, we don't sometimes think about how important these structural issues are to freedom. We, we relate very well to the, to the freedom of speech and someone trying to squelch that or the freedom of religion or some of the other freedoms that were guaranteed in the Bill of Rights. But the freedom that exists because the government doesn't have power to regulate something is, is a harder philosophical concept to understand and, and relate to. It doesn't, you know, unless we really have deeply studied it, we don't understand how important it is. Justice Byron White, who I often respected his decisions, wrote something really shocking in his dissent in New York versus United States. And he sounds a little exasperated writing this, but he says, ultimately, I suppose the entire structure of our federal constitutional government can be traced to an interest in establishing checks and balances to prevent the exercise of tyranny against individuals. Yeah, I agree. Then he follows this with a but. But these fears seem extremely far distant to me in a situation such as this. We face a crisis of national proportions in the disposal of low-level radioactive waste. Now, friends, however tempting it may be, a constitution is not for the moment, it is for the ages. It is to protect us and our liberty in the long term against the exigencies of the moment. It is to protect us against mob rule. It is to protect us against excessive practices to address a current crisis, like President Roosevelt interring all the Japanese in work, you know, in, in relocation camps. The constant, the, the role of the Supreme Court is not to worry about current crises of national proportions and waste disposal and things like that. It is to protect the Constitution for the long-term liberty and freedom of the people of this country. And so, 
however tempting it might be to sort of let constitutional requirements slide, it is unwise to allow present expediencies and the seductive appeal of streamlined government to override the checks and balances we have enacted in our constitution to maintain the rights of American citizens. So I'd like to see more debate about the 10th Amendment. I would like to see more proposed laws uh, be struck down as violating the 10th Amendment. I would like to see congressmen and senators deliberating it. If the Garcia case was right, that this these are political questions, which I don't agree with Garcia, mind you, but but they have the point that Congress can fail can refuse to act anytime it wants and say, yeah, we're not going to do that because it's unconstitutional. They can. So why don't they debate constitutionality based on the 10th Amendment? Well, I think too many of our senators and congressmen don't even understand it. They don't understand its role in protecting liberty, and they just think Congress can do whatever they want. I disagree. I believe the 10th Amendment remains important, and we need thoughtful Supreme Court justices and thoughtful lawyers going before them to challenge federal law. We need thoughtful Congress people that do understand it, people like Senator Mike Lee. And I think he is doing this to the best of his ability, but he's one guy that will challenge federal exercises of power that do not fall within the enumerated powers of the Constitution. So uh, I'm sure this is going to come up a lot more often on this podcast. I look forward to bringing it up. Uh, But that's all we have time for today. I want to thank you for tuning in and uh, for being part of this discussion. Please bring it up with your friends and neighbors. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so, so you can get notifications of new episodes. And uh, I love you guys, and I, I appreciate your being involved in the fight for freedom in this country. We'll talk to you soon.